0: So let's turn to Matthew 24 at this time. Now, if you're just joining us um, and you heard, well, they're doing a prophecy update on Friday night, which they do once a month, and you're in Matthew 24 on this Sunday morning, oh, you guys are one of those prophecy churches, Bible prophecy, and it's funny because there's, there's an uh, increasing bad attitude about Bible prophecy among Christians and churches. You know, and what, what's happened is uh, I've watched as, as a you know, guy who's been a Christian for over 50 years, I've watched the ebb and the flow of uh, you know, um, the, the trends. You know, Sometimes Bible prophecy is kind of the popular thing. Or sometimes it swings the other way, like today, where a lot of you know, churches and pastors are kind of saying, yeah, it's too divisive to talk about Bible prophecy. And then uh, a lot of the views of a majority of the church thinks that Bible prophecy is not even really in the Bible, Uh, that the whole Bible is just history and there's no prophecy in there, which uh, I'll I'll talk about that today Uh, because we are in Matthew 24, which is perhaps one of the most important biblical prophecy sections of all the Bible. And I say, how can you say one part is more important than the other? I guess that's probably, you couldn't say that except for these are red letters um, this is Jesus answering the disciples about the end of the age. What's it gonna look like, what to expect, what to look for, and Jesus talks for a really long time about that. Uh, as it turns out, Jesus is into Bible prophecy. And because Jesus is into Bible prophecy, should we be into Bible prophecy? I think so, uh, but you'll be shocked uh, if you actually kind of do, if you're not used to seeing what a lot of people are saying out there, it's, it's kind of shocking uh, that, that there's people out there that still believe that uh, the Bible doesn't talk about future events, it's all historical. Um, it kinda indicates maybe people aren't reading their Bibles because the Bible's, it, it, like we're watching things unfold in front of our eyes uh, that the Bible said in the last days, here's what's gonna happen. And the list goes on and on. And we kind of are shocked at, wow, look at how amazing it seems the days we're living are exactly what Jesus talked about, Paul, uh, Peter, um, the Old Testament books of Daniel and others. Like, we, we, we have to just kind of be honest and take an honest look at the Bible, Ezekiel, all those passages. And so um, we're not a, you know, uh, if you think we're just one of those prophecy crazy churches, it's actually that we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. Uh, One of the things that I love about going right through the Bible is we bring up Bible prophecy as it comes up. Um, How frequently does Bible prophecy come up in the Bible? Well, uh, it's a little more than one-fourth of the Bible. A little more than one-fourth of the Bible is Bible prophecy. So if you're claiming to be a Bible student or a studier of the Bible, you should include that one-fourth. But sadly, a lot of churches, uh, they say, well, we're gonna do topical teachings and only the scriptures we don't wanna talk about. And so um, you start taking the book of Revelation, rip it out. Uh, Or the book of Daniel, rip it out. Oh, they like the first half of Daniel because it's a story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and some of the story stuff. But when it comes to the biblical prophetic stuff, ah, it's too divisive, you know? And so there's kind of this sad, uh, you know, exclusion of something that is really major in the Bible. What's interesting is the people that uh, teach, you know, that Bible prophecy is not for today and it's too divisive. One of the things you'll notice is um, they're not through the Bible teaching churches, but all the churches that are teaching Bible prophecy are verse by verse, or, you know, uh, most of them are verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book teachers. Here's why. If you have a certain biblical prophetic view um, uh, that, that the Bible's all history and there's no prophecy in it, if that's your view, it's really hard to teach the book of Revelation. Like, how are you going to teach the book of Revelation from cover to cover if you don't believe anything's future? Uh, or the book of Daniel, or the book of Ezekiel. Like, you won't hear those guys teach those passages because it means nothing to them. They'll even say, well, that's just past history, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, I'll show you an example of that today, perhaps. But, but, um, but when you go verse by verse, you, you, you kind of have to be able to teach the Bible without your face turning red what do you mean, Brett? Well, I'd be embarrassed if I said, well, the Bible's only teaching history and there's no future events. Um, Then how do you handle some of those events and futuristic things that the Bible talks about? Um, In fact, especially the ones that are happening like right now in front of us. One of the uh, most amazing passages, if you ask me, is watching Ezekiel 36, 37, and 38 roll out during many of our lifetimes. We're watching that Something that nobody could have predicted with accuracy. But you know, basically, in a, in a nutshell, Ezekiel says, there's gonna come a time in history where the Jews are gonna reject God and they're gonna be wiped out and scattered all over the world. Diaspora is what it's called. And Ezekiel 36, 37 talks about how after the Jews would be scattered for a long time because of their rebellion against the Lord, but in the last days, they would start to gather again gather into the land of Israel. Read Ezekiel 36 and 37, that's amazing. You can check those boxes. Uh, those prophecies have happened in, some of you are old enough to remember back in, um, you know, when Israel became a nation again. They re, they've regathered in the last couple hundred years and they became a nation in the last, you know, what, 75 years. Um, and and uh, not only that, but Ezekiel says they'll become one of the most powerful nations in the world. And it talks about the, the land of unwalled villages, mo- mo- modern day Israel. Israel's become one of the most, uh, well, look, if you watch the news and see what's going on in the world, Israel's become an economic world superpower. That's what they're calling yeah. Israel right now. This little s- state that's smaller than New Jersey, uh, a nation. Uh, and uh, and their, their economy is booming right now. And their military is um, considered one of the top in the world. How did that happen? Well, it's what the Bible said would happen. And then what happens in Ezekiel 38 is what we're seeing start to be put into place where the nations are angry against Israel. And it says that all the nations of the world are gonna turn eventually uh, toward Israel uh, and hate Israel. And and then there's the Gog-Magog invasion. We can go on and on. And all the players are in place. All the pieces are coming together. Um, While everybody else who doesn't read Bible prophecy, they're saying the world is falling apart. We're, We're saying, wait a minute, it's all coming together. Exactly the way the Lord said it would happen. Now, if you don't believe in Bible prophecy, you have to say, what a coincidence that Ezekiel kind of nailed it and it was supposed to be some historical thing, but it's happening again only globally this time. Um, I think it's a little thick, honestly, just to say, well, forget Bible prophecy. I think you have to do some work. And so as we go verse by verse through the Bible, we happen to find ourselves in Matthew 24, which is one of the keys to understanding End times, because Jesus is asked that question directly and he answers it and we have a whole lot of red letters that follow. So a little different than maybe some of our normal Sunday mornings, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to uh, do a little bit of an intro if you'd allow me. A little, maybe a little more work today, uh, a little more cerebral because I want you to have the stage set a little bit for the next several weeks as we're going through Matthew 24 and 25. Um, it's, all, it's also known as the Olivet Discourse. And I'd like to just kinda of do an introduction to that today, uh, if you'd allow me, because the, the first thing you have to do is approach Matthew 24 and 25 with the right perspective, which I think some people um, have made error in, in the way they interpret Matthew 24 and 25. The, the biggest error, if you ask me, And I humbly submit, um, good Christians, and I I gotta stress this, I'm saddened that the church is doing the same thing the world does. You You know this whole cancel culture, if somebody disagrees with you on one point, I hate them. And I'm never gonna listen to them again. You can't say anything, I don't wanna talk to you. Like, that's the way the world handles it. And I see the church starting to do the same thing. There, you know, there's, there's um, important topics that we can talk about. Some are closed-handed, others are more open-handed. Um, some are essential doctrines, others are non-essential doctrines. But it's not that they're not essential to talk about, but you know, we can still be saved and disagree on certain things. This is an in-house debate, it should be. But I've noticed a certain hostility that's coming. I don't wanna be that. Uh, I have good brothers and sisters in the Lord that disagree on eschatology and the study of end times and stuff like that, that's okay. Um, but I am gonna argue uh, the point. I am gonna try to, so don't, don't hate, don't hate. Uh, just, just listen and you can, you, I'm not gonna force anybody, you, you can make a decision for yourself. But this is one of those topics takes a little more than just a Sunday morning to kind of quickly go over. Um, and so that's why today's a little different. I'm gonna try to set the stage so that we can study Matthew 24 with a, a clear sort of context of what's going on there. And I'll, I'll tell you right at the beginning kind of some of the biggest differences. Do you read Matthew 24 as Jesus saying, um, this is what's gonna happen and, and, his, and it's already happened. Everything Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 has already happened. Um, there's some people who believe that. Uh, a view called preterism is kind of the main group that says, yeah, Matthew 24, it all happened in AD 70 when the Romans crushed Jerusalem. And so, Matthew 24, if you read it, it's, it's really for those people of that time. And that's why some people dismiss it altogether. They say, yeah, whatever. Jesus talked about something that happened, it happened. Um, and so, it's past tense. But um, I'm going to show you that, uh, that Matthew 24, and I'm just going to say this humbly. Um, if you just read it and you see what's happening today, you realize that Jesus, when he was talking about it, he wasn't talking about Jerusalem only in a small little city context, when you read Matthew 24, you're gonna get a sense of a global uh, issue, something that's gonna be more worldwide, cataclysmic, and even end times-ish, last days sort of scenario. I think just reading it will help you see that. But there's some nuances, and so there's arguments. And one of the things I wanna do is, is let's, let's ask what Jesus is actually gonna talk about. And let's before we even dive into it, I wanna have us have an accurate view. So this Olivet Discourse, uh, as it's called, The reason it's called that is because it was on the Mount of Olives where Jesus gave this to his disciples. He just finished a big sermon to the multitudes in Jerusalem. And we looked at that on Wednesday night. Um, and, uh, and so we're, we're gonna kind of put all these pieces together. So the, the Olivet Discourse is an important passage for the development of anyone who wants to study Bible prophecy. And you gotta kind of start correctly there. Um, it's made up of our Lord's teaching of Bible prophecy. It's also found not only in Matthew 24 and 25, but Mark chapter 13, also in Luke 21. These are all mentions of this, this time where Jesus is talking about end times. And one's view of the Olivet Discourse will greatly impact whether you're a, a premillennialist millennialist or amillennialist or anti-millennialist or a futurist or preterist or pre-tribulationist or whatever. You're saying, Brett, what? What did you just say? Well, if you know those things, um, this, this is kind of a little bit of the battleground to sort of talk about what's my view as far as the end times and what have you. And so let's do a little bit of a deeper dive into this. And we're going to kind of bounce around here uh, to sort of uh, check this out. So the first thing I think I'd like to ask is, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of the all of that discourse? When Jesus speaks, all these red letters are red letters. Like when you see a big clump of red letters, I remember as a little kid when I was, you know, maybe a little bored in church, I would look through and see, where's all the red letters? Look, wow, there's three pages of red letters here. Like, you know, I was into that kind of just looking at stuff. Some of you probably doing that right now because you're bored. Um, But. But uh, I remember as a kid, you know, oh wow, the Sermon on the Mount has lots of red letters. And, but really, other than the Sermon on the Mount, the biggest next section of, of red letters is here in Matthew 24 and 25, and it's a huge, Jesus has a lot to say about whatever he's talking about. He's gonna spend a lot of time, more than almost any other topic. The, the Sermon on the Mount was a sermon that had many topics, but, uh, but as far as any single topic, Jesus really doesn't talk about anything more in a single you know, breath than right here in Matthew 24 and 25. So it's, it's an important thing. We might wanna sit up and take note if Jesus spends so much time talking about this. That's important. But the main point of, of the, or the purpose of the Olivet Discourse, I think, is kind of twofold. One, to talk about the second coming of Christ. Uh, I'll show you that, the context of that in a second but also that we're supposed to be, or specifically, especially the Jews, are needing to be watching and waiting and ready uh, for the return. In fact, uh, look ahead a little bit. Let's sneak into a few scriptures. Matthew twenty-four forty-two. it's Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. So that's one of the main objectives of this whole sermon, and he, he um, sort of repeats that. In fact, look at... Um, Um, not only verse uh, 42, but also verse 44. It says, therefore, be ye also ready for in such an hour as you think not the son of man comes. Jesus is talking about his coming, his second coming. First coming was when he was born in Bethlehem and lived among us, died on the cross, was buried, rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. That was the first coming. But he foretold his second coming. Well, Brett, you believe in the rapture of the church, so you believe in three comings. Nope, I don't believe in three comings. The rapture is not a coming. Why? Because the Bible says we'll be caught up uh, the, the Greek word is harpazo. The Latin Vulgate translation uses the word rapture. That's where that word comes from. Because people say, "Well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible." Um, it is. It's just in the Latin translation. Call it whatever you want: caught up, raptured, harpazoed, whatever you want to do. But it means we're going to be caught up and taken up into the air to meet Him in the air. So the the rapture is not a coming of of Jesus. It's us meeting Him in the air, and we're going to be there in our uh, marriage feast of the lamb for seven years while you know, tribulations on earth, I, that's what I believe. That's, I believe in a pre-tribulation uh, rapture. Um, and so all that to say, Jesus is saying um, in Matthew 24, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give you that watch and ready and, and be you know, willing to be a servant who's busy about my work until I come. And that's the second coming of Christ. Now, the second coming of Christ, for those of you who are kind of new to the Bible, is the first time He came to die on the cross. The second time He comes, He's going to come and rule and reign, even literally from Jerusalem, and that's going to be a whole different kind of uh, deal. Uh, The world will go back to more of a antediluvian world in some ways. You know, before the flood, men lived you know a thousand years, almost a thousand years, and and it was sort of a a whole different deal. We'll talk about some of that in our study in Matthew twenty-four, but. But um, when Jesus rules and reigns, uh, it's gonna be a time of blessing and sin is gonna be done and everlasting righteousness is gonna be brought in. It's it's gonna be a whole different program on this earth. All the wrongs will be made right. It's what we all pray for and look forward to. That's coming. And it's gonna be linked to the second coming of Christ. And by the way, the second coming of Christ, most uh, uh, Christians believe that. Uh, that, that Christ is coming in some time or shape or form, and we all agree on that one for the most part. Um, but it's, it's what happens before that that is sort of uh, you know, debated among Christians. But Jesus is gonna talk about just that. Jesus is gonna spend a whole lot of time here talking about what builds up to the events that's gonna happen right before his coming. And that's what Matthew 24 is about. So it's, it's really the purpose is to say, watch and be ready and, and vigilant, sober, um, the, the, the Bible has a lot of work uh, for us saying that that's what we as Christians are supposed to do. Watch the times and the seasons. <clears throat> the language of the Bible is like, don't let it take you like a thief in the night, like when you're sleeping and you're just caught unaware. The thief is robbing you. But instead, you are children of the light. You should know, like 1 Thessalonians 5 says, you will know the times and the seasons that you're in. How do you know that? By watching and being ready and being sober and vigilant. Like, um, which is really interesting because those who teach uh, in churches today that yeah, prophecy, prophecy, whatever. Uh, we're gonna talk about you know, things that matter today. Uh, God's gonna do whatever he's gonna do in the future. Uh, so we'll just talk about balancing your checkbook and having a happy family and, you know, um, and all the other teachings that they're saying. Uh, but they will not talk about watching, being sober, being ready because they think that's a waste of time. Oh, come on, Brett, really? There's people who believe that? If you, well, if you haven't been noticing, it's, it's actually everywhere. Um, and it's not that some of them are even talking about it. Most people are silent. Like the Catholic Church, most, most Catholics have no idea what the Catholic Church believes as far as the end times. But I'll tell you, there's a few hints. Like one thing is, the Catholics believe God's done with the Jews. The Jews once were God's chosen people to the Catholics, but they are no longer. Uh, the church has replaced The Jews and I believe that's an arrogant position. Well, but who are you going to call the Catholic Church? Oh, it's not me. It's the Book of Romans 9, 10, and 11. It tells the Gentiles don't be arrogant concerning my people, the Jews. For blindness in part has happened to the Jews, but that blindness, and when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then then it says that the, uh, the blindness will be lifted from the Jews, and all of Israel will be saved. God still has a plan for the Jews. They're still God's chosen people. They're just in a rebellious state, uh, unbelieving state right now. Uh, Most Jews don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now there's coming a time where the Jews will see that. And that's part of the main point here of Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is mostly addressing Jewish people, to be honest. When you, when you read Matthew 23 and 24, the context is a rebellious Jew, uh, culture that says, we reject Jesus. Remember three days earlier before this sermon, Jesus, they were saying, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And then after that, they said, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. And they rejected Jesus. Matthew 24 is largely gonna help us understand what God's plan for the Jews really are. So Matthew 24 becomes really confusing if you don't even believe God cares about the Jews anymore. Um, which is most of the Presbyterian church, the Catholic Church. those are their end times view. God's done with you, the church has replaced Israel. And it's more of, if you're curious, it's called amillennialism. There's no literal millennial kingdom. Um, and a lot of them believe we're supposed to usher in the kingdom of God. That's why the Catholic church believes they're the entity that's gonna actually usher in the kingdom of God. Now, if you read your Bible carefully, the kingdom of God's coming whether you or I do anything or not. Um, that's something the Bible's clear on. Um, It's not that we take a passive role in working in the kingdom and doing things for the kingdom, but ultimately that stands with Christ's return and his coming kingdom. So all this to say, um, you say, Brett, I don't know, really there's pastors that believe that? Well, one of the more famous and and noteworthy pastors that um, was influencing like this uh, even 20 years ago, he just recently retired and turned the reins over of one of the biggest churches in America is Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback. Now, let me say this, Rick's done some good ministry and he said, I'm not saying, you know, he's not a Christian and he's not going to heaven, but I will say his view on end times was very, very unfortunate. Um, And I'll give you an example of that. Speaking of ripping pages out of the Bible, I don't really do that. I like to read every page of every part of the Bible. But if you wanna rip pages out, um, take the Purpose Driven Life book and uh, just go and find page, what, what page is it? Page 285 and rip that out well, Brett, what are you talking about? Well, let me, Brett, that's mean. No, I really think you should do that. Why? Well, Rick Warren mentions Bible prophecy in his purpose-driven life. And again, I love, the thing I like about purpose-driven life, there's a lot of scripture. Uh, You'll see scriptures in there and it's encouraged a lot of people. I get it. And if it encouraged you, awesome. But, Um, When it comes to this issue of Bible prophecy, he was actually laying a groundwork in that book for what we're seeing today, kind of full bore, uh, pedal to the metal, where a lot of pastors have taken his view when it comes to Bible prophecy. In this quote from uh, Purpose Driven Life, you'll see that he has a low regard for Bible prophecy. This is what he says. Um, Warren writes, when the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism. He wanted them to concentrate on their mission in the world. He said, in essence, the details of my return is none of your business. What is your business is the mission that I've given you. Focus on that. Now, let's talk about this for a second. Was it true that when Jesus was asked by his disciples about um, prophecy, that Jesus quickly switched the conversation and talked about evangelism? Is that true? Not only is that not true, it's entirely the opposite of what actually happened. That's why I I struggle with this one. Was he he just not aware of reading one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, like Matthew 24, the text before us? Or is he just kind of lying? Like it seems kind of like a a giant lie because it's the exact opposite. What we have in Matthew 24 is the the disciples asking about Bible prophecy, uh, prophetic things, and then Jesus goes and keeps talking and talking and talking about end times. It's one of the longest dissertations in all the Bible of any single person. So it's really the exact opposite. Jesus not only didn't change the subject, but he talked on that subject more than any other subject for the longest amount of time. It's totally the opposite of that. And Brett, you sound irritated. Well, when I hear people say things about the Bible that are just totally the opposite of what is like literally true, it's, it does it does ruffle one's feathers if you know what I'm saying. Brother, are you saying you're a chicken? Well, Jesus compared himself. Well, that was last Sunday. But, um, but all that to say, um, yeah, one of the longest dissertations in the Bible, only second to the uh, Sermon on the Mount, by the way, um, but, but a close second. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Olivet Discourse, two of the longest uh, in the whole Bible. Um, but the actual opposite. So um, basically, in essence, Jesus... Um, does say, to Warren's point, Jesus does say, you'll not know the day nor the hour of my return. So when uh, Warren's saying, you know, in essence, Jesus said, the details of my return are none of your business. Well, that, that's an overstatement. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, make it your business to know the times and the seasons, but you won't know the day or the hour. And then over and over he says, watch, be ready, uh, be vigilant, be sober. Like the language of Jesus over and over says, not only don't, you know not, not to care about it, but to, to be concerned about it and make it a major part of your life. That's what's troublesome to me. Um, and so a lot of pastors jumped on that bandwagon along with Rick Warren saying, yeah, prophecy, whatever. And they've kind of thrown one fourth of the Bible out the window. Now, um, um, in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40, um, Jesus emphasized um, that it's essential to be prepared. I'm I'm gonna read this also in Matthew 24, but I'm just gonna show you another passage before we dive into that. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. You might jot that down in your notes, but listen to Jesus talking about this. He says, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning, and you yourselves liken to men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open him uh, it unto him uh, immediately. Blessed or happy are those servants whom the Lord when he cometh shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And it goes on in verse 38, it says, and if he will, uh, shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, Blessed are those servants. In other words, when he finds the servants busy doing what they're called to do, um, they'll be blessed. Verse 39, and this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and have not suffered his house to be broken through. But ye, uh, be ye therefore ready also for the Son, Son of Man cometh at an hour you think not. Jesus is saying, watch, be sober, be vigilant. And by the way, it's, it's not just Jesus, it's the apostle Paul um, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1 through like 10 he talks about the last days and he says you know, you'll, you, you won't know the day or the hour but you will know the times and the seasons that we're living in and by the way I understand, sort of, you know, Rick Warren and some of these pastors being irritated because there are some wacko pastors that teach Bible prophecy and they start naming hours and days. It's December 22nd, you know, when Jesus is coming back, or this is the Antichrist They start naming people. Like, that's where wacko-ness starts coming, and they've not done any favors to Bible prophecy. A lot of wacko people. And so, you know, what happens is the pendulum swings, uh, anti-Bible prophecy, and then Tim LaHaye books, pro-prophecy. And then, you know, and I've I've watched that. But Jesus wants a more balanced approach. And I would just say, rather than taking everybody's view, just read your Bible. Uh, Just read your Bible, and you'll see how much Jesus wants us to be focused on Bible prophecy. Um, that's why going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible is so fun. The frequency that it comes up, I think that's the frequency the Lord wants us to focus on it. So that's that's sort of the um, you know the, the 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 situation of of what the purpose is for the uh, um, all of that discourse is to be watching to be ready for the second coming of Christ. Now, to have a, a, a right view of Matthew 24, we also have to kind of look at it in its context, the setting. Uh, Brett, you already told us, it's on the Mount of Olives. Well, that's the literal setting. Jesus with his disciples sat in the Mount of Olives and, and he gave this dissertation. So yes, that's the literal setting. But what was the setting of the whole, the, the whole Jerusalem? And what was going on when Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse? And that's a key to understanding. Now, we did some work last week in Matthew 23, both Wednesday night and last Sunday morning, that's gonna help assist us in understanding the context of Matthew 24. And I want you to see that. Um, I think it's extremely important to see the setting. Uh, if you don't consider this, you might be off course badly uh, when you come to Matthew 24. Now, what did Jesus do in Matthew 23? Wednesday night, we saw one of the most brutal chapters in the Bible. Jesus gave a message to the multitudes in Jerusalem and um, rebukes and exposes the hypocrisy and the unbelief of the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, and he radically hammers away, calls them all kinds of names. People that say, "I just want to be Jesus and be nice," and and I understand that Jesus was nice and gracious, but he also had some times where he called people out, and it was quite, uh, you know, pointed and brutal. Read Matthew twenty three. And one of the things that I pointed out on Wednesday night that's kind of fun is we saw the mother hen comment last week, how he said, oh, I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And that's what we looked at last week. But when you read the context of the rest of chapter 23, which we did Wednesday night, it brings a whole new light to that passage we looked at on Sunday. So I do like that we get to go through the whole Bible. But now the Jews are plotting to kill Jesus. Because of what he said in 23, it only sealed the deal. They wanted to kill him with a vengeance, and they're planning and plotting that. Um, that's the, the, what's going on. Um, then Jesus made, after he said, I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, he finishes chapter 23 making a prophetic prediction or declaration. And we did touch on this last week, and let's review that. Um, look at, first of all, what, what does he say here? In Matthew 23, verse 38, after saying, you know, you would not. I wanted to gather you as a mother hen, but you wouldn't let me. So here it is, the prediction, verse three: Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And then the second prediction is: For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth until ye shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. There's there's sort of three main components to what Jesus just describes there. And there are actually three events that are gonna happen in prophetic future from when Jesus says this. And here's where the confusion lies. If you ignore what Jesus just said, chapter 24, it might not make as much sense to you. So it's important to see this. And by the way, remember the chapter breaks came much later. There was no chapter break, you know, uh, centuries after the Bible was put together, they added the chapter break. So, a, you know, a person would read, um, you know, verses 38, 39 and then go right into verse 1. It's all part of the same narrative and story. We, uh, the chapter breaks sometimes put too much of a pause, I think, in the context to help us see what's going on. So, what is Jesus saying here? The first thing, he predicts the destruction of the temple. When he says, Your house, verse 38, is left unto you desolate, he, he declares that, you know, the temple is going down. Um, now, this is, this is kind of interesting because Jesus was correct. This prophecy has already been fulfilled. And if you know your history, it happened just a few decades after Jesus said this. Um, he said, this house is going to be, um, you know, desolate. And in AD 70, the Romans came, led by Titus Longimaeus, who crushed Jerusalem, killed tens of thousands of Jews, and threw their bodies over the walls of Jerusalem. And then if you remember, we talked about this uh, briefly last time, where one of the Roman soldiers shot a flaming arrow through the 14-story doors of the temple. You gotta remember this temple that Jesus was looking at right here, beautiful. Herod the Great newly remodeled the temple. Uh, Took 46 years for them to build the temple in Jerusalem. Herod the Great was quite the builder. He was kind of a evil tyrant, but he was a really good builder. And he did a lot of amazing things like Masada and stuff like that. But the temple in Jerusalem was one of those amazing things and the huge stones, like giant Legos were stacked and that made the temple and it just looked like it was gonna be there forever and ever and ever, this amazing temple. And Jesus said, yep, this stone, this temple is gonna become desolate. That was his prediction. And when the flaming arrow went through those big doors, caught the tapestries on fire and it became like an inferno inside and all the gold melted into the cracks. And you remember, Titus commanded his army to topple all the stones to get to the gold that was melted down. They had a billion dollars worth of gold in there. So the soldiers took the stones and threw the temple stones over the Western Wall where they sit to this day. You can go to Jerusalem today and see the very stones that the Romans in AD 70 threw over the wall. There's still some of them piled up down below. Um, It's an amazing part of history. And sure enough, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. So you can check that box as done from verse 38. But the next part you have to say, has this happened yet? Where Jesus says, I say unto you, you shall see me henceforth, you know, no more until you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, I'm here right now, but because you are rejecting me, your temple's gonna be desolate um, and I'm gonna be gone, I'm leaving, I'm out of here. And you're not gonna see me until when? Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, some of you might be confused saying, didn't that happen on Palm Sunday? When they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Yes, just three days earlier they said that. But then they rejected him. They didn't know what they were looking for. They didn't know what to expect. They didn't know who the Messiah really was. They were looking for somebody different. So they uh, they, they, uh, despised and rejected Jesus Um, And that's where Jesus says, I would have gathered you, but you would not. I would, but you would not. So your temple's gonna be destroyed and you're not gonna see me until you, the Jews, are willing to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And see, this is something we Gentiles miss. Uh, We miss what uh, a Jewish person knows when it comes to this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic term. Um, it comes from the Psalms, where the Psalms are talking about the Jewish Messiah that's supposed to come. It's meant for acknowledgement of the Jewish Messiah, but they are rejecting the Messiah of the Jews. Now, um, now you say, okay, Brett, so he's talking about his return when he comes back. Yes. Has that happened yet? Well, of course not. The second coming of Christ hasn't happened um, and then also, the Jews have not, even to this day, said, blessed is he, Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. They still haven't said that. Oh, Brett, I know a Jew who's a Christian. Yes, there are a few tiny spatterings of Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But, you know, most of Judaism, almost all of Judaism, firmly rejects Jesus as the Messiah. But there's coming a day where they will all see. Uh, and I'll show you that as we uh, proceed in this. But now, now let, me, let me just... Pretend, pretend we're to the disciples and you just quit your job. You left your nets in Galilee as fishermen and you've been hanging out with Jesus for three years and kind of given your life to following Jesus and Jesus is talking about setting up his kingdom and you're gonna, and you're thinking, remember they were asking, can I sit on the right hand of your throne and all this stuff? And they, I'm not sure the disciples really knew what was going on most of the time. Now, before we mock them, we probably would have been more clueless than they were. But, but they were like, yeah, interesting. Remember, Jesus would say stuff and, and they, they would change the subject. Like, for example, Jesus, we learned a couple of weeks ago. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified um, on a cross and I'll be buried. And three days later, I'll rise from the dead. And then was like, ha, yeah, what did, it, hey, anyway, can we sit on your right hand when you make your throne? Like, they just, they didn't know what he was talking about. Now, Jesus is in Jerusalem, standing next to this huge temple that's beautiful. And he says, that temple is gonna become desolate and I'm out of here. You will not see me again until you're willing to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Speaking to the Jewish people, what do you think of, if you're a disciple at this point? You'd be thinking, oh, wow, we're, okay, so we're in Jerusalem today and now we're leaving and Jesus says, I'm not coming back. Uh, the temple's gonna be destroyed, but we're not coming back until the Jews accept him as the Messiah, okay, got it. And that explains the question that they ask in Matthew chapter 24. Let's, let's do some sneak preview stuff here. In fact, um, go, go with me to verse one of Matthew 24. It says, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Um, now, d- do you almost wonder why did the disciples say, hey, Jesus, we wanna show you the temple. Um, Jesus just said, it's gonna lay desolate. Maybe they're thinking, ooh. Maybe Jesus doesn't realize how amazing the temple is. Like, we need to show Jesus the temple. Because he's just said it's going to be desolate. The house of Jerusalem, uh, it's going to be desolate. So let's go show him the temple. Um, have you ever tried to show Jesus stuff? <laughs> I've done that in my prayers. Lord, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of struggling with something. And I, I think I'm going to fill you in on some of the details. And you kind of, oh, the Lord kind of knows everything. He knows all your thing needs before you even ask. But, but the disciples are kind of in that mode. I've been in that mode. The disciples are saying, let's show Jesus the temple. So they go and, hey, Jesus, come, let's go see this temple. And then Jesus, l- listen to Jesus' response here. Jesus says to them, see ye not all these things? Uh, that's King James, King James' way of saying, don't you see what I'm talking about? Are, are you hearing what I just said back there in Jerusalem? Um, he says, See, not all these things. Verily, I say unto you, remember one of the disciples, they want to go show him the temple. It's an impressive building. He says, verily, I say unto you, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus told the multitudes in his Matthew 23 sermon, your temple's going to go desolate. And then he makes it in total detail with the disciples. You guys, don't you understand what I just said? not one of these giant stones you're trying to show me right now in this temple, not one of them is gonna stay on another, which would have been a shocker to the disciples because they were huge Volkswagen bus-sized stones. Um, It took thousands of men to build, 46 years to build the temple. How could all of these giant stones just be not stacked on one another? This was gonna be here forever, they would have thought. But Jesus, of course, knew the Titus thing that would happen just a few years after he said this, The flaming arrow, the stones being overturned, the gold pried out of the cracks, and really the temple was totally demolished. Just not one stone stood upon another. And where the temple sat to this day is just flat on the Temple Mount. It's right next to the Dome of the Rock uh, shrine there in Jerusalem. So, you know, Jesus is uh, saying, man, don't you understand what I just said? Now, not only does does this this whole thing that we've just kind of gone over, show the destruction of the temple and the doom. There's a lot of doom there, but there's also a little bit of a smidgen of promise that we don't wanna miss. The the beautiful promise for the Jews is that Jesus is gonna come back. And there is gonna come a time where the Jews will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, One of the great Christians that is also a Jewish scholar and theologian, um, Alfred Edersheim. Any of you guys ever heard of Alfred Edersheim? interesting guy and and quite brilliant in a lot of ways. But uh, he wrote the book, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which is uh, 1883. And it's an amazing book uh, that I've very much appreciated over the years. But um, in writing about uh, chapter 23, verse 39, where Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, but also that he would return someday and the Jews would say, blessed is he that comes in the name of... Listen to what a Jewish guy says about this. Um, he says, looking around on all those temple buildings, that house it shall be left to them desolate. He, and he quitted its courts, its, its courts, or left its courts with these words, that they of Israel should not see him again until the night of their unbelief is past. They would welcome his return with a better hosanna than that which had been greeting him in his royal entry three days before, and this was the farewell and the parting of Israel's Messiah from Israel and the temple. Yet a farewell which promised a coming again and a parting which implied a welcome in the future from a believing people to a gracious, pardoning king. You say, okay, Brett, got it. So Jesus is gonna, the temple's gonna be destroyed. Jesus is promising that he's coming again and that the Jews would say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. See, now you and I have the benefit of hindsight. And we can say, well, that's exactly what happened. AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And we all understand now that the second coming of Jesus, well, that's gonna be a couple thousand years after he said this. We understand that the the repentance of the Jews would be a long rebellion. The disciples perhaps thought it was gonna be the day after tomorrow. When they hear this, they're, they're like, oh, the destruction of the temple and then we're coming back to Jerusalem. You're coming back to Jerusalem and, and the Jews are gonna again say, blessed is he that comes in the name of Brad, how do you know that? Well, it has to do with the next question. Look at the next question the disciples ask in verse three. They really wanna know a little more detail. Jesus just says, not one stone's gonna be left on another. So verse three, the, and he, as, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse three, the disciples came to him privately? Why privately? maybe a little embarrassed to ask this publicly because it might be a stupid question. It's not a stupid question, but they're kind of like, uh, privately, hey Jesus, we need some clarification here before we move forward with this whole kingdom thing. Um, they, they ask him privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming? Uh, remember, they might think it might be next week or next month. But what are the signs of the destruction of the temple? When shall they be? And the sign of that coming and of the end of the world. The disciples asked this question about the future. It's called prophecy, Bible prophecy. Alfred Edersheim understands, and he explained as a Jew, that the Jews, they have a glorious future. It's just way off in the future. And the Jews would rebel for another couple thousand years. Um, and so this is kind of an interesting thing. It's the until there in verse 39. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth until. Um, th- this is where so many people go wrong with the all of that Discourse. They, they, they see the destruction of the temple, which is part of this discussion, but then they say, so all of Matthew 24 is about the destruction of the temple, AD 70. So you're Preterist, you're Catholic, you're a lot of the Presbyterians, they all say, yeah, Matthew 24 is about the destruction of the temple, AD 70. Um, we're gonna show you as we read it in the next couple of weeks here, we're gonna see that it's much more global than just Jerusalem and it's much more broad than the, the, the horrible event that happened in AD 70. It is talking about that in part of this, but Jesus has two things going on there. He's talking about the destruction of the temple and then the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. And that's what Matthew 24 is about. Um, Luke 21, 24, you can jot this down in your notes, uh, records another use of the word until in similar ways when Jesus says, and they will fall by the sword and will be led captive by all the nations, which that happened to the Jews, and Jerusalem will be trampled under the foot of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Jesus is talking about the same thing in Luke chapter 21, but he puts a little different twist on it, talking not just about Jews, but about the Gentiles. The Gentiles are largely left out of the Olivet Discourse. It's all really about the Jews and Jerusalem. But in Luke 21, he says, there's gonna be an interim period where Jerusalem, the temple will be made desolate and it'll be trampled down by Gentiles. Question, how much of Jerusalem has been trampled down by uh, by Gentiles and how long? Really from the time of Jesus's death on the cross, uh, when the Romans possessed Jerusalem, ultimately crushed Jerusalem in AD 70. From that point, even to the present day, you say, no, they took the Temple Mount, the Jews, Moshe Dayan, the guy with the patch, some of you were kids when that happened. And they took the Temple Mount, but do you remember what he did 10 seconds later? What did Moshe Dayan do 10 seconds after getting the Temple Mount? Gave it back to the Gentiles, shockingly. Uh, I talked to a Jewish store owner once, and I said, why did Moshe Dayan give the Temple back? And the guy started shaking, he pulls up his pant leg, and he shows me this huge scar on his leg, and he said, I got this scar taking the Temple Mount with Moshe Dayan, and we to this day will never forgive him for giving the Temple Mount back. Uh, I was like, oh, didn't mean to go into a little sore subject there. Uh, but he was passionate about that. They, nobody really knows. He, you know, they thought maybe it was a land for peace kind of thing. We'll give you the Temple Mount as long as you be peaceful. That obviously hasn't worked out. But as it turns out, the Gentiles have trampled down the Temple Mount um, from the time Jesus is talking here to the very present day. But there's coming a time where the Jews, the until there, until the fullness of the Gentiles. Does that fullness of the Gentiles that Jesus is talking about? Does that ring a bell? There in Romans 9, 10, 11, God spells out his plan for the Jews and Paul says, um, and then when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, um, then all of Israel will be saved. That's the future Jesus is talking about when the Jews go through a really hard time and their eyes will be opened and they'll say, Jesus, we need your help. And they'll be willing to say, blessed is he, Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. Another Jewish scholar who's still living today who I appreciate is Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum uh, wrote some great works, Footsteps of the Messiah, must must have in my opinion. Um, But also he uh, has a book called Footsteps and I wanna quote... Um, uh, Fruchtenbaum on this um, verse 39, when Jesus talks about, you're not gonna see me until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Fruchtenbaum says this, but then he declares that they will not see him again until they say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. This is a messianic greeting. Fruchtenbaum, a Jewish guy, knows he's a Hebrew scholar. He says, the Jews know this, this is a messianic greeting. It will mean their acceptance of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. So Jesus will not come back to the earth until the Jews and the Jewish leaders ask him to come back. For just as the Jewish leaders lead the nation to the rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus, they also must someday lead the nation to the acceptance of the Messiahship of Jesus. Is he right about that? Well, that's where you read the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation talks about the tribulation prayer in chapters six through 19. And it will be during that time, the Jews will realize that they had missed the Messiah, Jesus. And they will cry out to the Messiah. Uh, you know the 144,000 we read about in the book of Revelation? Those are Jews, not Jehovah's Witness, by the way. The Jehovah's Witnesses we are the lost tribes of Israel and we're the, uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are not the 144,000. Those are listed 12,000 per 12 tribe. They're listed by name, by tribe. That's an amazing thing. So we're talking about Jews there. But uh, the Jews will be saved during the tribulation period and will call out to Jesus to be saved. And that's gonna bring in that time period. We don't know the day or the hour when the Jews will will repent and see Jesus. It'll be right after the middle part of the tribulation though. Uh, Does anybody remember what that event is that's called in the middle of the tribulation that's gonna make the Jews see it? The abomination of desolation. Coming soon to a theater near you. Sounds like a movie or something. Yeah, but Jesus is gonna talk about the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24 in detail. We're gonna talk about that. He's talking about this very event that Fruchtbaum says that the, 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 the Jews will eventually have to come to an understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. So the setting here is of key import. You have to understand uh, Jesus just said, I'm gonna, the temple's going to be destroyed and you will not see me until the Jews are willing to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the disciples say, um, or Jesus then says to the disciples, don't you know what I'm talking about? This temple's going to be, not one stone's going to be on another. That's AD 70. And then the disciples say, okay, so when is all this going to happen and, um, and they, they ask, um, what are the signs of thy coming and the end of the world? See, this, this question the disciples ask, I think is really important. And this is one of the more debated uh, verses in Bible prophecy, um, the question that the disciples ask. Would you allow me to break this question down a little bit? Because there's some interesting nuance things that can change your view on this question. The question from uh, verse three here is, they say, tell us, when shall these things be? and I would argue, um, you know um, when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of the coming and the end of the world? Now this is the King James translation. Now this is where it gets a little bit complex we got to listen carefully here. Um, Jesus is then going to answer this question and what's funny is that he's going to talk about the uh, signs of his coming and when these things shall be and the end of the world. He's going to talk about that, the end of the world. Now the critics of Bible prophecy people like Athey Creek or you know the people that say, you guys are into Bible prophecy. And and Matthew 24 is not about the end of the world. Uh, It's about the end of the age, they'll say. And the King James Version says the end of the world. It shouldn't say that, it should say the end of the age. And if you'll notice in your newer Bibles, if you have a ESV or a NIV or, um, I think New Living is the only other translation that says uh, end of the world, if I'm not mistaken. But King James, New Living Translation, say end of the world. All the other new translations say end of the age. And so those that are against the view that that Matthew 24 is talking about future events, they'll say it's just the end of the age, which is defined by AD 70 when Jerusalem is crushed, and that's the end of that age. Um, And they think that the reason I believe that Matthew 24 is um, the end of the world is because of the King James Translation. And here's the thing, I do believe it's about the end of the world, but I don't believe that because of the translation. I'm going to give that argument to them, and and they're correct. Your newer translations get it right when it says the end of the age. Um, It's the Greek word that's really important Where the word world. The word world there is ion, which means an era, a unit of time as a particular stage in history, which could mean an age like uh, up to AD 70, but it also could mean the end of the age as far as the whole world, the end of the age. It could mean either one. So just because it it maybe isn't the best translation to say end of the world, the King James translators, by the way, the reason they put end of the world is they saw in context what Jesus was talking about, including the signs of his second coming. So the King James translators assumed something that he was talking about the end of the world because he's talking about the second coming of Christ. Are you guys with me on that? So, so a lot of people uh, say, okay, uh, so you guys believe it's the end of the world because of the King James Bible. Well, I wouldn't say that's the argument. The better argument of what really is happening here is, is a, a careful consideration of these questions. Is this two questions or is it three? You might say it's three. Tell us, number one, when will these things be? Number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And number three, uh, uh, when is the end of the age? And a lot of people break it down into three questions. But actually, linguistically, um, that's not uh, the best uh, way of looking at it. If you look at the original Greek, since, since they went there saying the word world is not world there, it's, it's age, I'll give them that. But if you do a careful, careful uh, rendering of the Greek text, there's some things you should know about this. Um, most scholars that are linguistic, you know, the brilliant ones, they, they say, no, this is actually two questions. It, it could almost better uh, be broken down. When will these things be? Question number one. And question number two, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Um, now, where it says the end of the age, the word the before the word end, <laughs> again, you're saying, Brett, you're giving me a headache. Uh, I understand, uh, but stick with me just for a little bit more. The word the there. Is not in the original uh, language. Uh, it, it's, you know, the sign of your coming and the end of the age. In the Greek text, it reads more literally, if you would, the sign of your coming and end of age or end of the age. The word the is not before the end. You say, well, Brad, I don't know. By not repeating the definite article the, um, before the end of the age, Matthew's rendering of Jesus' words are linking those two events, the coming of Christ and the end of the world as one single event. So the disciples really are asking, um, when will these things be? Uh, when, when, and what things? The things Jesus was talking about. The destruction of the temple, yes. When will those things be? But also, what will be the sign of your coming, which we all know that still hasn't happened in the, it's yet even in our future, and the end of the age, it's all part of the same question. So the disciples are saying, what's gonna be like when the second coming happens and the world, what is it gonna be like? Is it gonna be the end of the world at that point? And that's where we read Matthew 24 and we see, oh, he's talking about the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. That's the way you have to approach it. Now, like I mentioned, there's groups of people that they look at it totally different. And one of those main groups are the preterists or preterism Now let me just say this. I have good friends who are preterists and they're gonna go to heaven just like you and me. Uh, We just disagree on a view. Um, And let's stop being um, uh, people that cancel each other because we disagree on something. And it's okay to agree to disagree. One of my favorite guys, uh, I study his books and I I so appreciated him while he was living on this earth. R.C. Sproul was a preterist. He wasn't a total preterist, but he was a partial preterist. but, uh, but brilliant apologist, uh, man, I loved watching him debate atheists. Uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, one of my favorites, but he was a preterist. Now I think he's a pre-tribber because he's in heaven. <laughs> and I bet he changed his notes when he got to heaven, like, oh, okay, got that. Uh, but anyway, um, according to preterism, let me just, I want to talk about this. I'll tell you about all different views as we go through Matthew 24. But preterism um, it says that all prophecy in the Bible is actually just history. And um, you say, well, Brett, that's a hard thing to say because there are some things that seem more futuristic. Well, the preterist would say that's all figurative. It's all allegory. Nothing is to be taken literally. You don't take Bible prophecy at all literally. The preterist interpretation of scripture regards the book of Revelation as a symbolic picture of first century conflicts, not a description of what will occur at the end times. The term preterism, by the way, comes from the Latin preter or praetor, which means past, Thus, preterism is the view that biblical prophecies concerning the end times have already been fulfilled. It's all in the past. And preterism is opposed to sort of its other component is those that are called futurists or futurism that believe prophecy is about the future. I'm one of those guys, along with, you know, a lot of others, um, you know, old J. Vernon McGee, you know, like there's, there's a lot of people that, they act like, uh, you know, they act like there's nobody out there that believes this anymore, but there's still a lot of people that, were, that still believe in Bible prophecy Um, But we see the end times prophecies, uh, many of them still having future fulfillment. uh, And that's what makes the Bible come to life, if you ask me. When we read Matthew 24 and you try to tell me that that's not talking about the last days and the signs, Jesus is not only gonna talk about the tribulation period that's yet to come, he's gonna talk about the things that lead up to that, which is the times you and I are living in. Even though Matthew 24 is largely to the Jew, Um, we're gonna see that Jesus is gonna say, yeah, but even before the rapture of the church, before we are taken up to heaven, we're gonna see signs of those times, but the end is not yet, Jesus would say. It's like a a woman in travail with child pain. We're gonna see that. And we're gonna see that that brings us really to the last part of our consideration as we pack it up this this morning. Um, The last part of the, the thing we're gonna need to look at is the answer. Jesus is gonna give the answer to this question, these two questions. When shall these things be? And what is the sign of your coming and the end of the world or the end of the age? However you want to say it, but it's linked to the the second coming of Jesus. When's that going to happen? And we're going to see Jesus give us a very clear and concise and detailed answer, more of a detailed answer than we see in all of the Bible, the whole Bible. So when Rick Warren says, the disciples asked about Bible prophecy and Jesus just changed the subject, Matthew 24 is, is the most detailed answer given in all the Bible by far, not even close second to anything else. And that's what we're gonna look at as we come, the answer. Let me, let me read one little verse, verse before we go, verse four. Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. <laughs> the very first thing he says, there's gonna be deception on this. Uh, so don't let people deceive you on this. And I believe that many are deceived today by just discounting what Jesus is about to say. Most churches don't even wanna waste their time with Matthew 24 because it's already happened, it's already past history, and so they're missing out on something that Jesus said, don't be deceived on this. That's why it's gonna be very important for you and I to study Matthew 24 and give it great concern and and, uh, give it our time. Bible says, study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's what we're gonna do over the next couple of weeks in Matthew 24. Like I said, today's a little different and a a little more of a cerebral attempt to explain the different views of how we approach Matthew 24. But the main thing you gotta always hear before you leave Athey Creek is, um, you know, the main thing is you need to be saved. If you've never accepted Jesus, if you don't believe that he died on the cross for your sins, if you've not accepted that, the Bible says you're still in your sins and there's no salvation. And what Jesus says in Matthew 24 is actually kind of horrifying if you don't really, know Jesus personally. So I would just say in this next week or two, or even today, to make sure that you're saved first and foremost. That's gonna be the main thing anyway. You gotta accept Jesus Christ and believe that he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave. And the Bible says you'll be saved. Saved from what? All of the stuff that's happening here and, and death and hell and all the future. We get to go to heaven instead. So if you wanna do that, if you're watching online or if you're here, um, there's gonna be pastors here or you can call the church office, but we'd love to pray with you and you can accept Christ, be forgiven of your sins, be saved. And man, there's no better way to live on this earth if you ask me than to know that you're headed for heaven. In Jesus' name, let's pray together. Lord, as we uh, consider your word, I pray that you'd help us to understand uh, how thankful we are for the living nature of your word, that it's powerful and living. And Bible prophecy uh, really does show us that the book is living. Even as we're watching events unfold, even this week, Lord, uh, of what you were about to tell us here in Matthew 24, we're seeing all of these things unfold in front of our eyes. So Lord, we're thankful for that living nature of your word. It's not just some book of literature, but it's a powerful Uh, work of truth and salvation. We're thankful for that. So as we go our way, Lord, I pray you'd fill us up with your love, your joy, the peace that passes understanding for that hope that we have with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.